Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 12. Last week, I began a summary of the history of ancient Egypt, working from the prehistory of the region through the Middle Kingdom. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm starting at the end of the Middle Kingdom and working my way through the reign of the Greeks, so to about the year 30 BC. All of this is a prelude to the much more in-depth history that I'll kick off in a couple of episodes. And since it has had such a great bearing on the development of the culture in that region of the world, this week I'm also going to do a deep dive into the Nile River itself. So let's get started. When I ended last week's episode, the Middle Kingdom had not quite yet collapsed. But it was close. The current theory as to the cause of the collapse is that its last known leader, Queen Sobeniferu, who ruled between 1806 and 1802 BC. Okay, pause for a second. The kingdom's collapse was over 100 years later, but she marked the start of the decline. Apparently, she had no direct heirs, which left a power vacuum, which of course nature and power-hungry people both equally abhor. Dynasties 14 through 17 controlled the region, albeit loosely, between about 1650 and 1550 BC, in a time known as the Second Intermediate Period. It was during this time that the northern portion of the former kingdom was occupied by a group known as the Hyksos, a group that originated in the Levant. Hmm. Researchers believe that in this 100 or so year span, there were no less than four capital cities, which, given some thought, isn't terribly surprising. After all, this isn't a kingdom, but an intermediate period, with a constantly shifting locus of control. After the second intermediate period came the New Kingdom, which included dynasties 18 through 20. This kingdom reigned from about 1550 to 1070 BC, so three dynasties in 500 years. By Egyptian standards, a fairly stable period. In the transition period from the Second Intermediate to the New Kingdom, a succession of Egyptian rulers drove the Hyksos from Egypt, and then the various regions of the country reunited, forming, you guessed it, this new kingdom. It was during this kingdom that the so-called Valley of the Kings served as a burial place for well-remembered leaders such as King Tutankhamun, who reigned from 1336 to 1327 BC. Also during the period was Queen Nefertiti, who was both King Tut's stepmother and mother-in-law, and maybe even his predecessor. The last pharaoh of the period was Ramses III. Following his death were years of infighting between his heirs. Three of his sons ascended to the throne successively, all taking the name Ramses. And the climate, once again, came into play. Egypt was hit by droughts, which led to lower than normal flooding of the Nile. This begat famine, which begat civil unrest, and was followed by official corruption. The royal power waned to the point that the high priest of Amen at Thebes became the de facto rulers of Upper Egypt 
and the Smendes controlled Lower Egypt. And remember, and this is confusing, Upper Egypt was in the south and Lower Egypt was in the north, all based on the flow of the Nile. As a note, Moses is thought to have been born around 1400 BC, at least according to many sources. So, if this date is correct, his birth, exile, return, and the exodus of the Israelite people would have occurred during the New Kingdom. After the downfall of the New Kingdom, Egypt entered into what is known as the Third Intermediate Period, which encompassed the 21st through 24th dynasties. This period was between 1070 and 713 BC. Overall, the period is punctuated by periods of a weak central government alternating with periods of a disunited country. And such disorder was typical throughout the region at the time, as the mysterious people who have become known as the Sea Peoples rampaged through the lands. Uncovered Egyptian artifacts claim that these invaders were defeated by the native Egyptians, but at a minimum, the fighting led to an eventual collapse. Not to be forgotten, but there was also a disruption in international trading which contributed to a weakened central government. After the Third Intermediate Period came what is known as the Later Period, which was ruled by dynasties 25 through 31, and spanned the years 712 to 332 BC. And note, this was not a kingdom, but simply a period. Why is this? Well, during most of this time, Egypt was under the control of outside powers, namely from Persia, Assyria, and Nubia. So, think of it as the people of Egypt being stuck between a few great powers, the Persians and Assyrians to the east and north, and the Nubians to the south, which, if you've been counting, gets us through the 31 or so dynasties I mentioned in the beginning, but not to my cutoff point of about 30 BC. So, driving a bit further forward in time, in 332, still BC, the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great pushed the occupying Persians out of Egypt and brought Egypt into the Macedonian Empire. Of course, and as I've covered before, Alexander did not live long enough to enjoy the spoils of his conquest, as he died in 323 BC. Upon his death, one of Alexander's generals, specifically Ptolemy I Soter, became the ruler of Egypt. Actually, he ended up taking the title of Pharaoh and ruled until his death in 283 BC. He was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who you might remember from the last episode. It was Ptolemy II who asked Manetho to record the history of Egypt. The control of the country would remain in the hands of the same family through about 81 BC, but the actual reigns and rulers is far too complicated for a summary episode, but rest assured these will be covered in depth in the future. But, and just as an example of how complicated they were, there was a succession of rulers named Ptolemy through the 10th iteration, and the 9th version actually held the title of king on three separate occasions, alternating rule with his brother Ptolemy X. Yeah, it's confusing. Rulers named Ptolemy 
combined with wives, sisters, and daughters, all named Cleopatra. When the time comes, I'll do my best to present it as straightforward as possible. Finally, the last real ruler was Cleopatra VII, Philopator, who ruled alongside Mark Antony, who himself was a Roman. They both committed suicide before being overrun by the Romans in 30 BC. This was when the hereditarily Greek Egyptians were fighting the Romans for control of the region. And who was it in Judea who took the side of the Greek Egyptians? None other than Herod the Great, which of course gets us to just before the birth of Christ. And for clarity, the Greek Ptolemaic are not considered to be part of a numbered dynasty, despite the Egyptians of the time considering them to be pharaohs. And, since I haven't mentioned it yet, the term pharaoh, etymologically, started with the Egyptian word para, which translates to the phrase, the great house. It is believed to have been first used during the reign of Totmos III, who was on the throne from about 1479 to 1425 BC, placing him in the 18th dynasty, and therefore in the first part of the New Kingdom. Now, with that in mind, and considering that the word Pharaoh also appears in the Old Testament, you can begin to triangulate the dates the Israelites were in Egypt, and also the writings of the Pentateuch, food, maybe manna, for thought. Which gets me to the end of the summary of Egyptian history, but leaves another 12 or so minutes to fill. Keeping that in mind, there are a few other items that warrant covering for a couple of different reasons. Overall, they help to explain how and why the history of the region developed as it did. For the balance of this episode, I'll cover the Nile itself, and in the next episode, I'll kick off with the general religion practiced by the native inhabitants. I'll also work through the history of the language, specifically the written language, because, well, it just doesn't fit well with the flow of the narrative as I recount the dynasties and periods. So having said all that, the Nile. I don't know if I've explicitly stated it to this point, and if I have, I apologize for being redundant, but the Nile River, for millennia, has been the lifeblood of Egypt. The origin of the word Nile, like so many things ancient, is not really known. Hesiod a Greek 8th century BC poet thought to be a contemporary of Homer, and he's also considered the world's first economist, at least in the western sense of the word. Anyway, in his written work entitled Theogony, he wrote that a Greek god named Nihilus was one of the river gods, son of Oceanus and Teethys. Therefore, the word Nile may be of Greek origin. An alternate etymology is that it was related to the Semitic word Nahal, which translates to river. But in the ancient Egyptian language, the Nile was called Hippi, or sometimes Ituru, both translating to river. And if you think it through, if you lived along the Nile, any other river would seem like a mere creek. So it's understandable why the word for river would be the same as the name of the Great River. And in the three versions of the Bible I use for this podcast, 
the name Nile does not appear in the King James, but it is in both the New Revised and New International versions. In most cases, where the latter two versions use the proper name, the King James uses the phrase, the river, or something similar referring to an unnamed flowing body of water. It's also one of the great rivers of the world. It flows from south to north, which is an extremely unusual characteristic. We know now it's either the longest or the second longest river in the world, depending on who you ask. Of course, the other river of such a great length is the Amazon. The Nile itself is almost 4,300 miles, or nearly 6,900 kilometers, from its furthest source to the Mediterranean Sea. To put that in perspective, that's about the distance from Los Angeles, California, to Charleston, South Carolina, and back. So, twice as long as the width of the continental United States. And you can bet the ancient Egyptians knew it was a great river, but with all of their knowledge, they were limited geographically, so they had no clue how it would rank on the globe. But the limit of knowledge was not just limited to the Egyptians. Even the Greeks and Romans were unsure as to the actual source of the river, and it wasn't for a lack of trying. Agatharchides, a 2nd century BC Greek historian, records that in the time of Ptolemy II, a military expedition had penetrated far enough along the course of the Blue Nile to determine that the summer floods were caused by heavy seasonal rainstorms in the Ethiopian highlands. And despite that bit of knowledge, it also appears they did not know about Lake Tana, a large body of water further upstream. It's commonly believed that the lake was unknown to the Western world until about 1700 years later. As for the White Nile, it too was a mystery to the ancient Westerners, and its far reaches were not explored until the 15th century AD. More on the White and Blue Niles in a second. In our current political geography, the drainage basin of the Nile encompasses 11 countries, namely Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, the Congo, Kenya, Ethiopia, Eritrea, South Sudan, the Republic of Sudan, and of course Egypt. The Nile has two primary tributaries, the White Nile and the Blue Nile. The White Nile is considered the primary source of the river. It's called white because the silt suspended in its fluid is a whitish colored clay, but the Blue Nile carries more water and therefore nutrient-rich silt. Actually, that's not completely true. The White Nile is more stable, contributing about 70 to 90 percent of the total flow of the river in the dry season, which spans January to June. The Blue Nile is much more volatile, with water volume in the wet season, August and September, being up to 50 times greater than it is in the dry season. In that wet season, the Blue Nile accounts for about two-thirds of the total river's volume. It's so much flow over a short season that when averaged out annually, the Blue Nile still contributes over 50% of the river water's volume. And the variability isn't just on an annual basis. In extreme droughts, the Blue Nile dries up completely. 
It may have been a similar situation that led to the years of famine that Joseph, through deft management, guided the Egyptians and Israelites through. Also contributing to the volatility is the influence of the Atbara River, which flows into the Nile after the blue and white tributaries join. The Atbara originates in Ethiopia and is about 500 miles or 800 kilometers long. It only flows when there is rain in Ethiopia and dries very rapidly. During the dry period of January to June, it typically disappears completely, leaving behind only a dry riverbed. At least, this was true historically. The Sudanese government dammed the river in 1964 to aid in irrigating the otherwise seasonally arid region. The volatility of the Nile, like I mentioned last week, has been a constant throughout the history of the region. Of course, as we'll see in the history of Egypt, there have been droughts, but up through 1970 AD, the annual flooding was a constant, supplying both water and nutrients. And since I'm on the subject, this yearly flooding was greatly reduced with the construction of the Aswan High Dam, completed in 1970, which also aided in bringing electricity to the country. So why then is the White Nile considered the primary source? Well, it's longer. In fact, its ultimate source is a matter of dispute. But this source lies somewhere beyond Lake Victoria in one of the feeder rivers of that great lake. And as for those feeder rivers, primarily the Ruvi Araza, originating in Burundi, and the Nyab Grongo, originating in Rwanda, are of disputed lengths too. Add it all together and it becomes easier to see why geographers, to this day, are unsure of the real total length of the river. The Blue and White Niles meet up in Sudan to form the Nile, no prefix necessary. Before moving on, there's one more tributary to cover, the Yellow Nile, but this one is a bit different as it no longer exists. When it did exist, which was between about 8000 and 1000 BC, it connected the Wadai Highlands, located in what is today Eastern Chad, with the Nile. So I'm sure you're wondering what happened. Well, remember last week when I spent a decent amount of time on how the Sahara used to be greener? And then, due probably to a changing climate, it became the sandy desert we know today. The Yellow Nile was a victim of this desertification. Claudius Ptolemy, the 2nd century AD Roman Greek Egyptian scholar, even had a map in his book, Geography, that showed the southern end of the Sahara was about 300 miles or 500 kilometers further north than where it lies today. But back in most of the BC portion of history, the area that is now the Sahara Desert was a chain of freshwater lakes and marshes, substantial enough to support flora, wild fauna, and even domesticated cattle herding. But not anymore, having dried up thousands of years ago. All that's left of it is what is known as the Wadai Hawar. It's so dry today that the area averages just one inch, or 25 millimeters of rain, per year. And while I'm on the subject of what the river formerly did, 
there's one more really interesting theory, and that is that the Great River formerly followed a course much further to the west than where it flows today, and even where it was in ancient Egypt, so much further west that it discharged into the Mediterranean in what today is Libya, and specifically into the Gulf of Sidra. This location is about 700 miles or 1,100 kilometers away from where it currently discharges. The theory is based on the postulation that at the end of the most recent ice age, so around 12,000 years ago, as the sea level rose, what was once the Nile diverted to what had only been a stream. This, too, may have contributed to the desertification of the Sahara. There are actually several other theories about its course. Well, really, the courses that the river followed over the past several tens of thousands of years. Way, way back in one of the Flood episodes, in this case, Chapter 2, Episode 9, I covered a theory that the Mediterranean used to be a dry bed until water broke through at what is now the Strait of Gibraltar. Embedded in that theory was that some millions of years ago, the Nile emptied into this dry basin, and the floor of that basin was much lower than the current sea level, at least on that portion of the globe. In following its course, the Nile cut a deep canyon that essentially is underneath the thick, hundreds of meters thick, layer of silt that forms the riverbed today. There's some geological evidence of this, primarily uncovered during the construction of the Aswan High Dam. But I'll end it here, as it's not really pertinent to the human history of the area. And once again, a disclaimer. Not my belief, not even all geologists believe it, as some believe the latter theory of the discharge in Libya. But some do. Moving along. Once all the major tributaries join together, the northern section of the river flows north through the Sudanese desert to Egypt, ending in a large delta that via its many branches flows into the Mediterranean Sea. And even today, most of the population of Egypt lives along those parts of the Nile Valley north of Aswan. On its banks and in its floodplains, the ancient Egyptians grew wheat, flax, papyrus, and other crops for both consumption and trade. We see these crops, along with the others, mentioned in the Old Testament. And, in Genesis, we even see the trade of this wheat when Joseph sold, well really gave, it to his brothers. Like the regions and regimes in Mesopotamia and Arabia that I have previously covered, and even true today, the trading system that developed linked the Egyptians with their neighbors. And not only did the river provide hydration and sustenance for people, but also for their livestock. Of course, there were camels, sheep, goats, and the like, and no surprise there. But there were also water buffalo. So you may be wondering why this is surprising. Well, the short answer is that these beasts of burden are not native to the region. They are, instead, native to Southeast Asia, a distance of about 3,700 miles, or 6,000 kilometers. And how did they get there? Early forms of international trade. Or, maybe Noah's son Ham kept a breeding pair, and Egypt managed to wrangle a few of the offspring. 
In economic terms, the Great River provided for efficient transportation. Despite, or maybe due to its large size, the river is slow flowing. So, sailing upstream is not really an issue, allowing for easy two-way transportation. And easy transport leads to easy commerce. Not to be forgotten, and due to its immense influence on daily life, the river played a role in the religion of the people. But I'll cover that in more depth when I walk through that part of their ancient culture. Finally, the river was such a part of the daily lives of the people that their calendar was even based on it, specifically the three distinct seasons it brought, the flooding, the planting, and the harvesting. The year was divided into roughly 120 days for each season. I'll end this episode here and pick up next week with the religion and writing of the ancient Egyptians. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.